eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, back with another post-race edition of the podcast. We took a couple of weeks off for the Indy 500, but now we are back coming off of Sonoma Raceway, the Cup Series racing there Sunday. Kyle Larson with another win, back-to-back wins, and joining me to talk about it. Great to have him back as well. NASCAR NBC analyst, part-time Camping World Truck Series driver, Parker Kligerman. Parker, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. A lot, really fun to see your face again. And uh, as the world's opening up, I get to see Nate Ryan at the same time. This is a win-win for me. Yeah, my only regret here, Parker, is we've been doing more of these in the studio prior to Motormouths. And when I saw you were on the grid today for Motormouths, I, I got all excited because I thought you were going to be here. But you're going to be on remote, so uh, people will see that, of course, after they've listened or seen this. But yeah, normally we, we tape these around Motormouths, and Parker is on Motormouths just not in Charlotte, but hopefully we will do this in person at some point in the near future. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we will. We'll get back to it. I'll be yeah. down there soon. So definitely. We'll definitely. So Kyle Larson, Parker, you know, you can help me out here as a driver, but it, it, I thought since 2017, the conventional wisdom on road courses was if you wanted to win a road course, you couldn't do it by winning both stages. And I think there was a, a Fox stat that they put up that said something absurd, like 85% of road courses, stage one winner has not won the race. So I thought that was just sort of conventional wisdom, that there was no way you could be fast enough to win both stages and the race. But Kyle Larson stomped on that at Sonoma. He won stage one. Uh, his crew chief, Cliff Daniels, said that the plan was always to win stage one. But then when they saw how fast his car was in the first 10 laps up to the competition caution, they just decided, hey, this car is so fast. Let's just win stage two and see if we can win the race. So <laughs> your perspective on that as a NASCAR driver, I mean, are we underselling that? Over, am I overselling this? I mean, was was Kyle Larson truly just, I mean, you talk about being another zip code. This was truly another zip code. He was dominant. And I think a lot of people expected it, though. Um, and if you didn't, you weren't paying attention because what he did at the end of the race at Coda, obviously knowing how good Chase Elliott has been on the road courses, which obviously, you know, that has landed Hendrick Motorsports being very good on the road courses and Chase leading that baton. And then Kyle Larson coming in, you know, here, knowing that he was going to be on a tear at this team. Road courses, him being fast wasn't surprising to me, and especially that one where he'd been fast before. So I think all those things came together. I think the speed they had allowed that strategy. You know, in racing, we always say winning fixes everything. But in terms of trying to win races, what fixes any problem you have on track or any problem off track is speed. So if you've got speed, you can solve all the issues you want. And I think that's just what they had. They had more speed. No one could touch him, not even chase there at the end, who took a couple shots at him, couldn't even get close to him. So he just had that couple tenths in his pocket that is rare uh, in top level motorsport. But when you have it and you execute appropriately or correctly, you find yourself doing what he did, which is winning everything that's available. And no one was even close. Yeah. And you mentioned it, Hendrick Motorsports teammate, Chase Elliott, probably chiefly among them was the big surprise that even he couldn't keep up with Larson. There was this one point where it was on a restart, I think after stage two, where Larson went 15th to fifth in five laps. And you're thinking, okay, like he gets through traffic like that. He's fast, but then, you know, he gets up to second and he's six seconds behind Chase Elliott. And you're like, okay, now we're going to find out how fast he is making up six seconds and six laps on a road course. Um, Tell us how hard that is to do as a driver. I, I want to experience it sometime. (laughs) How about that? Um, no, that was cool. I mean, that's normally, you know, that sort of deficit where you you built, you've taken down a deficit like that. That's normally where you're on a different tire 
or you, you know, soft versus hard tire from one, or you have many less laps on your tires, that sort of thing. But to just do that straight outright speed is just unbelievable. I, I think there's just times where in racing, it happened to me a couple of times in NASCAR over the last decade uh, that you, you show up to track and you're just, you have two tenths and that two tenths, it might not sound like a lot, but it's every lap that you run. If you have that two tenths, because whatever reason the setup was perfect, you're driving it perfectly. That becomes even magnified more in the races because you're on different strategies. You're abusing the tires differently, that sort of thing. So when you have that, Obviously, we didn't have practice qualifying, but I assume we would have seen that five car having some serious speed. It's one of those times where it really, everything just clicks. And it seems like you can't do wrong. And you're going so fast, and you don't even know why. And I bet if you ask Cliff Daniels, you ask Kyle Larson, why were you so fast this weekend? They would tell you, yeah, we hit it. You know, because they did. They hit it. They just had that magical couple of tents sitting in their pocket. And at the same token, they executed them correctly. And when you do all those things, you know, you have the day they had. Is there any danger in that at all, knowing that you've got those extra two tenths in your pocket to press too much or to think, you know, like, oh my God, this is the type of car I get once a season? Or is it just a sense of, do you think, calmness for Kyle Larson that like he's got the patience, doesn't matter how far back I fall, I'm going to get back to the front? I think if he had won already this year, that would have been different, right? It's an entirely different uh, approach. I'll give you an example. So uh, when I left BKR and went to Red Horse back in 2012 truck series, we went to Iowa and from the first lap I had on track, I had two tenths in the field and we got, we won the pole by a couple tenths. We set a track record. We got in the race. We led like a hundred and one laps. And mind you, I had not won a truck race yet. So this is, I was going to win this truck race and in dominating fashion, you know, lead every session, lead the most laps, win the pole, set a track record. It was going to be like the quintuple or something. I don't know if you call that. And we hit oil um, another truck, I think it was like uh, Jennifer Joe Cobb or something blew an engine and spun out and took the sway bar off. And I'll never forget like thinking you, we had, every, you know, we had, we didn't have to try and we went two, three tenths faster than anyone on track and we lo- found a way to lose it. And I remember th- it was the most devastating loss because it wasn't like you couldn't make the say, Oh, you know, we put ourselves in position and didn't win it. Or, you know, maybe we didn't, you, we were, we had to out execute them. Or we had to do this. It was like, no, no, no. You had everything, you had all the speed and you mess, you didn't find a way to win. So that devastating. So I think for him, you know, having already won that patience, being, you know, knowing he had that much speed, you don't have to push, you don't have to do anything crazy and mentally you're not going to. And so he was able to go out there. I, I wouldn't say easy because there's nothing easy about driving a stock car road course, uh, you know, find a way to win. And you know, it's cool. The odds going in this weekend, I had to do that hit with Dan Beaver. It was like eight to one for Kyle Larson. No way. And I, I huh. immediately saw that and I said, that's the pick. Like if I had a pick, it would have been on Friday or Thursday, whenever we did that. I was like, I would pick Kyle Larson and sure enough, it worked out. So. Yeah, because I mean, I'd forgotten it. I mean, you're right. He probably should have won Coda or would have won Coda if the rain doesn't come, right? And then mm-hmm. Chase Elliott probably has to pit and and Larson probably was the fastest. So that that brings me to my next question, Parker, which is, and I've already had a person who will go unnamed email me and it's like, hey, what are the Hendrick teams doing? Like, what are they doing with their cars? That doesn't leap to mind immediately. I can understand like people think like, hey, why are they so good on road courses this year? You know, Larson could have won Daytona Beach road course as well. But I think that they have great drivers. But is there anything <laughs> that they're doing that you see that, you know, potentially would make the Hendrick cars better? Or is it just a matter of Kyle Larson's generational talent? Chase Elliott might be generational talent for road course racing in NASCAR. I mean, is it just they've got two of the best drivers right now? I don't want to discredit Kyle or Chase's talent or what they bring to the program. But the obvious, you know, for my opinion and being a racer, you know, if I was sitting in that garage right now, another team, I would be saying, what's in those cars, right? Yeah. Like, all right, yeah. what have they figured out? Because obviously... I think Chase and I think Kyle are amazing drivers. Bowman, Byron, they're all great. But, and in the cup series, you know, every driver from 30th, the 30th place driver on a given weekend or 33rd to first, they're all, you know, if you put them in the same car at the same time at the same, if you could theoretically do all that, they're all going to run within a 10th of each other. Right. I think that on the speed side of things of like a straight up speed lap, that's uh, you know, when we see things in the cup series trends where a team or a group, is doing really well. To me, that lends a little bit on the equipment side of saying, okay, they figured something out and they obviously, you know, are taking full advantage of it. 
Um, what that is, I don't know. I couldn't tell you if I, uh, I did, I, I'd probably have a Hendrick Motorsports uh, badge <laughs> on my shirt here. So yeah. I think the, you know, sometimes when we see stuff like this, that a lot of times lends it to being, you know, maybe they found an aero advantage. Obviously Chevy has worked really hard as we know to become more competitive from where they were two, three years ago. And, you know, those sorts of things aligned with the development freeze and, you know, sort of some, maybe some of the things that they got right at the end of when we could do open development, they figured out that have carried forward now and others can't quite develop as quickly anymore. So I think those sorts of things have probably, you know, somewhere in there, maybe it's a mix of all of it, have come together to give them the this, this speed that they have. And you put it, they have some of the best drivers by far. One's a champion right now. And one is most, you know, in my mind, when he was going here, this was, um, to me, it was fulfilling the prophecy for Kyle Larson to end up at Hendrick Motorsports. That was sort of the, ever since he first drove a cup car, I thought, well, he'll end up at Hendrick Motorsports. So, right. yeah. <laughs> and he'll yeah. be amazing when he does. And yeah. sure enough, he is. But I think they're taking full advantage of that. And you got it because you could turn around in two months and suddenly Gibbs, is hitting on it as we've seen in the past or Stuart Haas figures out their woes and suddenly Hendrick's the third best, right? So you've got to take advantage of the times when you have an advantage like they have. Yeah. And, and certainly this is a cyclical type endeavor. We've seen that before in NASCAR and that's been the narrative. I asked Cole Custer about it last week and Martin Trex Jr. And, you know, they both said Stuart Haas racing, Joe Gibbs racing, they're working tails off trying to catch up with Hendrick. But you mentioned it, Parker, that the parts freeze, the lack of wind tunnel time and development, no practice and qualifying is this a, a season that theoretically, if you have an edge as a team, is it going to be tougher for the other teams to catch Hendrick? I guess theoretically, yes. <laughs> I think, and I think, <laughs> I think you know, the thing is, is it's sort of ingrained from a year or two ago, right? That's when we sort of started this development freeze. And then what you were allowed to do and what you were allowed to, then you weren't allowed to go to the wind tunnel, so on and so forth. So I think it compounds a little bit as well, because then if you do have that little bit of gap of something you figured out, and you're making incremental gains right now that maybe aren't as large as we could before because you can only do so much development or it's just smaller things and smaller tweaks amongst the stuff you already have for refinements. Uh, I think, it, yeah, it sort of gives you that level up that compounds throughout the time that you're able to do that and keep that advantage. So I think for the other major organizations, though, your Joe Gibbs, your Stuart Osses, whenever we get these teams that sort of become dominant we like to say like well how will they ever get caught right like <laughs> right. who's gonna figure it out yeah and i'm like i don't know maybe the x amount of engineers and tens of millions of dollars at Stuart Haas racing or the tens of millions of dollars and x amount of engineers at joe gibbs are probably gonna figure it out so yeah. i just think that's why it's a competition right we do this because we compete and just because one team has it right now doesn't mean it's going to last forever. And I know there's development freeze anything, but even within that, I find it hard to believe that we'd turn around here in four months and be like, no one ever caught them. No one ever figured it out. That would be yeah. shot. Like you said, millions of dollars lying around at Stuart Haas and Joe Gibbs Racing and the brain with power there. Yeah, with one, yeah, goal. With one goal. Go and beat those like, other cars. Dozens of like engineering bachelor degrees, probably a few doctorates mixed in there. I mean, yeah, it's you're right. It's sort of a recipe for, of course, they're going to get better at some point. I want to get your reaction, Parker, to a couple of things that Kyle Larson said post-race I found interesting. The first is, and I talked about this when I had Burton on a couple of weeks ago after Dover, just about the amount of homework and studying that drivers have to do now uh, in terms of SMT data. And Larson talked a lot about that, but he also talked about taking what he'd learned in doing those studying and talking to a name from the past that struck me, Scott Speed. Larson went out of his way to name check Scott Speed. He said he gave him a lot of good advice. Scott Speed, of course, former Formula One driver, former NASCAR driver, former rally cross driver. He's done a lot of things. And Larson said that I put work into it this week. Um, by looking at a lot of SMT and things like that. And, you know, Josh Wise, I work out, do not just work out, but, you know, I do a lot of stuff with him and, and he's hired on Scott Speed to kind of work side by side with him. And, you know, Scott's one of the best, you know, American road racers we've ever seen. So getting to pick his brain a lot and, and look at areas where I've probably struggled in the past. And Scott really helped me this week, my mindset and, and how I thought you needed to outbreak people which was you know, opposite. So what you really need to do. So talking to him, um, I felt like I got a lot better outbreaking people. You know, I was able to pass people really easily. So I think having him was a huge benefit to me as well as, you know, Ross Chastain and Reddick and Bowman who ran pretty good today. Yeah. So I think we have a really cool thing going throughout the week and it, it definitely helps prepare all of us. 
uh, drivers who work out with him and Scott, Josh and Scott uh, to be good for the weekends. So I just want to get your take on that, Parker. Like, I don't know how well you know Scott Speed, but if you're in Kyle Larson's shoes and you have that opportunity to take that data and then talk to somebody like a Scott Speed who's raced all over the world at all these different road courses, help me help us understand, like, how does he take that and make that so productive in winning at Sonoma? I think there's a lot to unpack here. I'll start sort of the beginning of all this, where we're going with this. And first and foremost, I absolutely, you know, understand where he's coming from, which is that the, the homework side of things that, that you and Jeff talked about and what he's talking about with all the homework, that has absolutely become in the last, I'd say, decade, and especially in the last five to seven years, if you're not doing the homework and putting in the work as a driver in the Cup Series, you're not going to be successful. There's so much information available at this time to a driver that didn't exist 15 years ago that you can't help but have to be, you know, to look at certain things and have more at your disposal than you did. And if you're not taking advantage of that, you're just not going to be successful. It's just plain simple. Um, and sure, some will be hit or miss, but the ones that really rise up to become your consistent champs and your consistent winners are the ones doing the homework. Because, you know, as I said, everyone's very close in the Cup Series. Drivers are very close. The cars are very close. What becomes your edge is the little tiny things that you can find to outdo someone who's at the same exact talent level as you, right? That's mm -hmm. the, the cup series is really the only place where if you're a top 20 worldwide driver, that you're going to get into a position where there's 19 others at the exact same talent level as you. So how are you going to beat them? Right. That's what NASCAR cup series racing is. So back to my, what a lot to unpack there. 15 years ago, I started working with a coach at the time, and this was a new concept in racing to have a coach. And then Formula One was probably one of the first major motorsport series to really accept having coaches. They have driver coaches that come in that are on the teams. And there was always a stigma in driving where, especially in the NASCAR world, where like a driver should just figure it out, right? But then you look at other sports like football and you have a QB coach specifically for the quarterback because he's a very integral, important position who needs some help to figure it out, some outside eyes. Yeah. Well, for drivers, it's like, there's no more integral position than the driver. It, it's literally when the rubber meets the road. How could they not have help? So I think a trend we've seen in the last five years has been drivers searching for that help, searching for those outside eyes, the knowledgeable outside eyes that can guide them in a direction or help them figure out things. We hear it often now, drivers saying, I put in the work or I talked to so-and-so and they they went and worked with me on a simulator and blah, blah, blah because it's no different than football or other sports where you need a coach and you need, it helps to have an outside set of eyes. If you're doing any project, if you're doing a school project, you like to have an outside set of eyes. Well, when you're a professional race coach at the top of the cup series, wouldn't you like to have a little help? I mean, that's, that's pretty, you know, normal. So I think what Kyle's talking about working with a guy like Scott speed, you know, other guys are out there, other professional coaches, IndyCar, there's still a lot of those. There's many professional coaches, because the driver is so important and the fractions of difference between, you know, first and 20th is so close. Driver coaches are, are integral over there. I think in the coming decade, especially the next gen car, that will almost become a position on a team, mm. which is you will have driver specific people that are about driver performance, driver coaching, driver data, going through the driver data, so on and so forth. That will be a, uh, one of the most integral parts of a race team here in the next gen era. And the departure is the, the reason I want to start 15, 20 years ago was that a driver coach 15, 20 years ago was some guy who won a race or something getting on the spotter stand and being like, yeah, I don't think you're doing that right. I don't think you're doing that right. Now it is far more to the football level of understanding how you get the best performance out of a driver. And that's who that person is going to be. And they might have driving experience or they might not, but there will be someone that's designed to get the best performance out of the human being. And the reason yeah. it's become so much more finely tuned that you're talking about, like versus the guy just standing up on the spotter stand saying, yeah, it looks there. It's, it's because of that data. It's because they can look and tell you exactly you're getting beat right here in this turn because you're not braking hard enough or in the pits, you're, you're, you're getting beat on your rolling speed here, here, and here in these sectors. Is that essentially what the SMT data gives you? A hundred percent. That was a big, you know, that was a big unlock for the driver side of things was to have the SMT data or the, you know, just to have driver input data that we'd only have in testing before that, you know, before about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, Dartfish came around. That was one of the big breakthroughs from a guy standing on the side of the track telling you what to do yeah. to here's overlays of you versus the other cards. So you could see line differences, speed differences a little bit. That was sort of the evolution. And then when the SMT data came in, driver input data all the time, that opened up a floodgate of 
all right, now I can see exactly what you're doing, what the other guy is doing. Plus combine that with the, when the IndyCar world, they combine that with the Dartfish, the overlays, and they, they have these massive reports that break down everything the driver's doing from every position, every corner, every competitor, so that you can really get down to those nitty gritty, tiny amounts, fractions of a second. Um, and yes, the, so the data we have now allows that. And I'm glad you brought up the IndyCar side, Parker, because in the preseason, we were talking with Max Chilton, preseason media availability. Max Chilton drives for a lower tier team, Carlin Racing. And he was telling us that he has a driving coach. He mainly focuses on road and street courses, but he runs Indy. So I don't know if it's overrelated, but he, I, he was saying what you just said, that like every driver has a coach. They just don't talk about it. <laughs> like yep. a lot of guys yep. just aren't comfortable with it. I thought it was mainly like a mental thing, just like getting your head right, psychiatry, that sort of thing. But it sounds like it's as much that as it is technique and, and yeah. how to do it, right? Yeah. So my, my coach is Bob Perona. He now works with Jack Harvey and Jerry Green. He worked with Simon Pagino when he first came to IndyCar, Simona De Silvestro. He's worked with numerous amounts of drivers. James Hinchcliffe, he was at SPM for a while. He really was at the infancy of driver coaching uh, back in the early 2000s. He actually had, he drove into Atlantics, had a coach, which was Ross Bentley, who wrote Speed Secrets, which has become a very popular thing in the, the road racing realm. So coaching has definitely been around, but there is a stigma, right? There is that odd stigma of like, you don't want to talk about it, but everyone has one now. And yeah. in IndyCar, they're a great example of, because the cars are so close, the driver actually makes a huge difference. And so- making sure that that driver is as fine tuned as possible and has someone who can look at the data with them and look at it from a driver perspective and not an engineering perspective, but the one that goes into the engineering, you know, meeting and says, look, yes, we need the car to turn a little better, but here's where Max actually released the brake just a fraction too soon into the turn seven. That's causing a bit of an understeer. If you can get us three more here, then he'll do the three that he needs on here and we'll have, we'll find our perfect balance. That's how it's, you know, where it's going in terms of the driver coaching realm. And I, it's just, it's just going to become more popular as, the, as in the whole racing world. Formula One, you know, they're going to a far more spec style car, next gen car, NASCAR. We all want to make the drivers more important. Well, guess what? When we make them more important <laughs> than making sure the performance is better or at top peak performance is going to be just as important. That's what these, these drivers and X drivers and just overall performance coaches are going to be huge. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense as the cars become more standardized across every major series. The, the driver is an important part of the equation. We like that. One more thing that's interesting on the, on the Scott speed part of it. I should have looked this up. I didn't, I don't know when his last NASCAR start was, but clearly been a long time since he's raced full time <laughs> in NASCAR. Is it just knowledge of technique and of a Sonoma or just like being good on road courses? Like, how do you think he can just help Kyle Larson, even though clearly he has not had a lot of recent experience driving the car that Kyle yep. Larson drove Sunday. Well, stock cars, you know, until we get to the next gen car, you know, really the design of them, especially on road courses, the the design and the, the way you drive them has not changed for probably 15 years, right? Hmm. 20 years almost. Basically, it's really very similar. No matter what body was on them or what we have, you know, in terms of the exact power level, that sort of thing, the, the, you know, the brake sizes haven't changed underside suspension hasn't changed you know these things have been very similar so when you find out what works it generally continued to work right and i think for scott i can't you know know what he and kyle talked about but one thing i can tell you is that someone like him who's been in formula one and gone through the open wheel ranks and seen data and seen the techniques you know there are there's road course racing is, is a highly highly technical situation compared to oval driving where there's a lot more creativity in oval driving actually funny enough there's a lot more you get away with a lot of different styles. Whereas in road course racing, it's very much, there is a specific thing that works a lot of times. And that's what you have to do. And you just have to do it better than everyone else. Hmm. In oval racing, you can kind of be a little bit more creative and you can do more things because it's more momentum based. So at a lot of times where road course races are, or time is gained from oval drivers who maybe have a predominant oval background is under braking. They have to figure out how to properly brake how to bleed speed as quickly as possible, how to make sure they're maximizing the strength of their current race car under the brakes and then therefore maximizing lap time. So I know this is, this is like getting very into the weeds of driving, but that means that Scott was probably able to help Kyle very much on the technical side, on the techniques used, on maximizing what a stock car does well, which is nothing on a road course, but what it does better, what you want it to do better than the other guys. And I think that's, uh, that's probably, if I had to guess, that's what 
they were talking about and that's what they were able to learn from each other. I love getting in the weeds. I love that you can give that kind of analysis exactly why I like having you on here because that's exactly what Larson was saying. He kind of expanded on the answer a little bit and said that it helped his mindset in terms of outbreaking people. That's fascinating stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, for mere mortal like myself who doesn't drive <laughs> race cars like you do, figure out how people get this kind of help at that elite level. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another person who helps Kyle Larson a lot is Cliff Daniels. And Kyle Larson said after his win at Sonoma, something interesting. He said that his relationship with Cliff Daniels works well because one, he's an intense guy like he is. He's very competitive. But two, Kyle Larson throws out this nugget that Cliff Daniels loves dirt racing. Yeah, my relationship with Cliff and everybody on the five car is great. And, you know, Cliff's a, a very intense guy. You know, he's a he's a perfectionist, really. But that's what you want out of a crew chief. But um, outside of that, you know, it's it's cool to me that, you know, obviously dirt racing is important to me and, you know, all that, but he watches more dirt racing than I do uh, throughout the week. And I think that's really cool. And, um, you know, he'll, he'll talk to me like, Hey man, did you see, you know, this or that, like this guy did great. Did you see that slide job or whatever? And I think that's awesome. So, and it definitely helps us build a, a closer connection. So, you know, he's, he's only a few years older than me and I hope we're together for a very long time. Kyle Larson claims that Cliff Daniels watches more dirt racing than him throughout the week. Well, that's because Kyle's racing in them. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably part of it. Well, I, and that sort of gets to my to my question is, I mean, I had no idea that Cliff Daniels was such a big dirt racing fan. And I clearly he, he and Kyle are connecting on this and talking about this in addition to, you know, what how they can make they make the number five Chevrolet faster. But I just curious, you know, your perspective on that as a driver and a crew chief. I know you guys don't always have to be friends. But it sounds to me like in this instance, you know, again, like I don't know if it's Cliff Daniels as an actual dirt fan or he took an interest after he knew he was going to be working with Kyle Larson. But it seems like they have a connection there we were mostly unaware of until Kyle Larson told us about this on Sunday. Like, how does that help or or can it help? Or do you think it's something I mean, do you have you had that with any of your, your crew chiefs where maybe you find things to connect on the personal side or the, you know, the hobby side away from racing? I find that fascinating. I didn't know that about Cliff. I've, I've talked to Cliff a lot in the last couple of years. Um, I like really enjoy my time chatting with him all the time. He's always very available. Uh, I would have tabbed him more as like an Ivy league college rowing guy, like, yeah. opposed to like a <laughs> yeah. dirt racing guy. So that's pretty funny. I love that. But I think anytime you have to work so closely with another individual as sort of the leaders of whatever it is you're trying to do, whether it's a business entity or it is a race team, when you are the de facto leaders and you, can find common ground, something to be excited about outside of just your job and what you do working together. I always think that always helps, right? And it helps to enjoy going to work every day than to not, right? It doesn't matter what you're doing. I don't care if you're doing under, underwater basket weaving. If you enjoy <laughs> doing that, you're going to have a better time than not enjoying it. And a lot of times that's who you work with and the people you work with and the relationships you have with them. So in racing is no different. A driver and a crew chief, have all sorts of different relationships. Sometimes it's like a mentorship, right? Where you have an older crew chief and a younger driver and they're telling them, you know, sort of mentoring them. You can have the boyfriend, girlfriend, or, you know, significant other style relationship where you bicker all the time and you still love each other sort of thing. And then lots of times it can just be a friend, right? If you're more similar aged, which we see often, you're similar age, you're in a similar stage in life, both trying to make your way or whatever, or you're at the the end careers like those are successful partnerships because you both understand where each other are at and you understand you know what you're trying to get out of the situation so the key is having one of those right the, the problem normally is if you don't have any of those then you're you're probably not in the right situation because you're not going to get along you're not going to perform you don't trust each other 
so on and so forth. And that's when we see these relationships blow up. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's like, you almost have to find like the right archetype that you have yeah. with that person. I mean, you're right. I think, you know, Larson and Daniels similar in age, they're probably like a couple of years apart. So, and like you said, both trying to like get that first championship. I think Canales and Johnson were probably more similar to that old married couple that you're talking about, the big ring, <laughs> but they still, they still figure it well, out. Well, I think they started probably like friends. They grew into being a little bit like that old couple. Like they bickered a lot, but I would have had them similar style like cliff and kyle where it was like chad wanted that shot at the time and knew it was his shot jimmy knew it was his shot and so they just said hey we got to figure this out and make this happen and they did so yeah yeah great point and then seven championships and 17 seasons later then you're at each other's throats uh, every week (laughs) um but no yeah you're right it works one more thing on the race park i want to ask you about because i thought it was a good race um had good action but uh, like not a lot of things I would pull out and ask you about, except one thing that happened right near the end. Ross Chastain takes out Corey LaJoy in turn 11 <laughs> and spins his car around backwards and then thinks, yep. oh, you know what? If I just hang a left here and go right through that big round circular area that everybody goes around, I can pretty much not lose any ground. So he did that and finished, I believe, sixth, definitely finished top 10 while Corey LaJoy did not finish top 10. A lot of other guys did not finish uh, probably as well. Um, But NASCAR said no penalty. So driver perspective here, what did you make of that? Because I am surprised he didn't get penalized. I have to think this is one of those scenarios that no one ever thought was possible. (laughs) Like like, a shortcut, really? I mean, I watched it all go down and I couldn't, here's the thing. I couldn't quite tell that he gained time. Like if, if you know what I mean, like he got yeah. spun from the position he was in. Right. But by the time he got back to where he rejoined, it was like he joined back where he was. Right. So right. that's a really odd scenario because 90% of the time if a rule is written about cutting a course, it is that if you cut the course, you know, in Formula One or these other series, it is you got to give the time back, right? You got to give the position back. Well, then it, technically he didn't really take more positions, which I didn't quite see, versus then if he didn't, did he have to give them back? Right. Like, yeah, this is where I see all these issues. And I, I think it's such a rare edge case to where he was able to pull that off. Now, if he had gone off in that corner, someone else spun out and he decided to turn right before all the barrels and then cut the course and gain 10 positions. That would have been a problem. I've been like, <laughs> what the hell just happened? Right. But with this one, I mean, he lost time and sure, he probably gained a little back, but he never gained position, in my opinion, where he rejoined really on the racetrack or track position wise. So that's a tough one. I would not want to be in the uh, decision chair with NASCAR for that one, because that that's a really, how, how do you define that he cut the track or gain something that, you know what I mean? Like, where do you go there? Because that's a slippery slope, because then you're basically saying, if I get spun through the grass over in the S's and rejoin back in position, everyone else stopped. So I don't gain a position. Then do I get penalized? Like right. you penalize him for, you know what I mean? Like, so yep. I'm trying to, so it's, it's a really weird deal. And I think I'm sure when we go back there, they'll have a new rule that says like, Hey, if you go in here and you gain 10 seconds, it's a problem. But um, I don't know. You know, I, I saw a lot of people upset about that and he gained the system and won. Good for him. Yeah. You know, they'll change it. They'll make it the, the Chastain rule for the future. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying because I, yeah. that's what I was trying to watch on the replay. Like, did he gain positions by making the move. And I think you're right. He probably blended in maybe a spot or two behind where he was when he hit LaJoy, but obviously he benefited because if he would have just looped it and done a 180 and started from where, yeah, he would have yeah. lost all the positions. He just, he just made up to, to be, you know, where he, where he was when he, when he hit LaJoy. Um, and, and to your point, like, I think if I'm one of the guys behind that crash or just anybody in the race, then it's like, it creates this kind of slippery slope precedent of, okay, if I'm entering turn 11 and I'm back up here and I see a crash in front of me, well, I'm just going to hang right and just avoid the entire turn, right? I mean, that, yeah, and then, that, prior, then it's too far and then I got to figure, you know, if you cut the course and get time, so they'll just have to figure that out with rules. But, um, you know, like Coda, I thought that was going to be a huge issue. Right. Track cutting and all that stuff. And we never even talked about it. Well, once you can go to a place where you assume it's going to be a huge problem and then you go to a place you're like, that will never happen. <laughs> and it happened. So <laughs> I don't envy NASCAR's position, but I don't know. I'm sure they'll have more cameras than I saw. They'll dissect it part. You know, they'll have the onboard and they'll have the data and everything. And they'll look at it all and say, okay, here's what we figured out. Here's how we know we can solve in the future. So on and so forth. But yeah. Chastain got away with it. Kudos to him. 
because pretty awesome you find a shortcut (laughs) (laughs) it was definitely cool to watch uh and definitely brings us into those track limits discussions which we normally hear about in indycar and f1 and uh that's where i want to wrap up today parker is the f1 race in Baku, to me, this is like F1's Talladega. This race, like the craziest stuff happens year after year after year. And you have good perspective on F1. So I want to, I've got a couple of questions. I don't even know if I could explain all of the events that happened over the last four laps, but needless to say, you should just go watch the highlights. And what was amazing about this restart, they do this restart. Essentially, they had like a green, white checkered finish. They red flagged the race and had a standing start for the final two laps. And the first thing I want to ask you about is Lewis Hamilton was in second place and they restart the race and he's coming up on Sergio Perez and just for Lewis Hamilton makes this unbelievably uncharacteristic error where he just he blows the corner goes straight through goes from scoring 20 something points to zero points huge championship implications Lewis Hamilton said after the race that (laughs) there was a magic break switch that he accidentally had left on and apparently the magic breaks it makes your breaks disappear <laughs> Can you explain that? Like, I'm um, knowing that you have some yep. familiarity yep. with the F1 cockpit. Like, there, they, I saw some photos floating around that you actually retweeted. There's a switch yep. that actually says "magic breaks." What does that do? And is it on Lewis or is it on the team for like telling him, "Hey, don't forget to toggle that when you have this restart." So, first of all, that was wild. And second of all, Formula One cars are highly procedural based, right? It yeah. takes 20 engineers just to start the damn things. There's tremendous amount of procedures. And we see it in the high-end prototype sports car stuff over Lamal, those sorts of things. You know, you get these, the drivers get massive manuals that have to take you through all the procedures and you've got to memorize these things because they're so technologically advanced. With that comes the opportunity to do some very cool things, which in that type of racing, what we deal with in stock car racing for the NASCAR fans out there is a lot of times we're trying to eliminate heat in stock car racing. Heat is an enemy to performance in stock cars. Everything in a stock car is too small or not able to get cooled well enough, or it's just not what you would use if you were trying to get the best performance out of something. So we're trying to constantly evacuate heat from a race car, except for rare occasions at like Martinsville on a very cold day, we try to get heat in the tires. In Formula One, and a lot of times in Opal racing, heat, the cars are very, you know, designed to a position where technologically they are almost perfect and so you're trying to find absolute perfect heat levels amongst everything that goes for brakes that goes for tires they talk about all the time having to get the tire in the perfect range that's trying to find that exact heat profile that allows it to create the best grip because that car can be designed to do anything with the brakes what happened there is they mercedes you know they've done a lot of work when they had the dash system which was the wheel movement that allowed you to change the toe on the front tires to put more heat there they also did a deal with the magic brake lever, which was allowing the brakes to go. Basically, from what I understand, you can cut off the rears. A lot of times, like we have in stock cars, which is a lever that we use on road courses sometimes, where say we're going off and trying to make a date a late pass. We have a lever that we push down, and that will cut the brakes to the rear and just have the front so you can brake way harder and then deal with it on the X, you know, sort of get away with it. They were using it to pump heat into the brakes to get them to the operating temperature they want, as well as the wheel, the tires, because heat from the brakes transfers the wheels, which goes to the tires. So he left, apparently he turned it off and then hit it by accident on his upshifts, that uh, button. So what I assume okay. they will do is they will move that button or they will go through a new procedure or something. And that's normally how you fix these things in Formula One. I It's weird because when I saw that restart happening, I had just thought, I was like, Lewis is going to, I don't know why. I just said in my mind, I'm like, I think he's going to just end up driving off the track here in turn one. <laughs> I don't know why. I just felt like the whole thing, his mantra, what he said before, it's a long season. I was like, oh, that's, that's a death nail. I'm telling you. <laughs> and sure enough, he spears off. And I was like, did I just tell the future? But um, that, you know, obviously had a lot. It wasn't him. It was what mechanically was in the car. But that's a very, you know, there's, Form one is so technologically advanced. There's so many things like that. You have, that's why you see those things where it's so procedural based because there's so many elements to everything they do. Like you said that Hamilton sort of jinxed himself in a way by saying, Oh, it's a long season. I'm not going to do anything crazy. And then something happened was just unbelievable, but it was also somewhat fitting in that his chief championship rival, Max Verstappen was going to win that race. And it was his tire failure uh, with three to go that, that set up this red flag, green, white checkered finish 
And uh, again, I want to get your take on this. I, I, you can argue that there was a safety element here because Red Bull versus Happens team and the, the team of the winner, Sergio Perez, was saying, hey, we got to stop this thing. We got to change tires. This is the second tire failure we've had across the field. You know, we got to figure this out. And F1 said, or the steward said, yeah, okay, we're going to do that. But to me, Parker, it felt a lot like NASCAR 2001 to 2004 pre NASCAR overtime pre, you know, green, white checkered finishes, they would stop a race if the caution came out with a certain number of laps to go and red flag it so that they could have a green flag finish. That's what F1 did in Baku. So did that surprise you that F1 would do that? I mean, it stunned me because it seems antithetical to what I normally think of in the whole purity of competition with F1 and even IndyCar versus NASCAR's focus on entertainment. I will say 10 years ago would have shocked me. Yeah, They would have cautioned that rate, put a safety car out, finished under caution, that's the end of the race. When Liberty Media came in, it became very clear that, you know, Formula One was behind in a couple areas. Social media presence was lacking because, you know, Bernie Ecclestone and the regime before to believe social media was a fad. There was, you know, lacking in terms of promoting the stars like Lewis Hamilton, who is now an international superstar, far exceeding the sport of Formula One. But at the time, 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. They weren't doing a great job of that. They relied heavily on TV. And then lastly was, hey, this can be cool and it can be technologically sophisticated, but it can be entertaining and it's okay. And I think, you know, the, the biggest, I, I did it on my uh, YouTube show, which sadly we haven't done in a while because of COVID, but um, in the wall, when they announced what first became the budget cuts and then eventually what become now the 2022 car, that to me was the mark of Formula One finally saying, we care about the show right. and not just the idea of being pure. Because, you know, Motorsports Forever was this idea of we are going to prove technological excellence. We're going to do all these things. And Formula One was the height of that. But they noticed and they realized and looked around the sporting landscape. And with people, you know, when you're vying for people's time with this darn phone in their face all the time, you got to give them something. You got to sell them. And, you know, that's where Formula One has made a massive mentality change. You have Zach Brown, who's come in there, even Toto Wolf, who has a, a very powerful voice within that sport. Now, his success is very much even on the top team. You know, when they did the budget cut stuff that they did, that took Toto Wolf and, and Ferrari to say, we're going to give up our inherent advantage to, for the betterment of the sport and the show. And that just that shocked me two or three years ago. So now since that has happened and since that mentality shift has occurred, did I, was I shocked to see them try and pull off a green white checker? No. I was like, that's right in line. I love it. It's awesome. Formula one should be entertaining. Think about this. Formula one. So it's having its insane growth in the U S and we all know that's because of the drive survive show, which is, I, I go around, I live up here in Connecticut, New York area. I go around, I meet people all the time who they hear I'm in racing and they go, I know nothing about NASCAR, I know nothing about racing, but I watched Drive and Survive. Formula One's awesome. And I'm like, what just happened? Like, that's incredible. <laughs> I'm, my buddy was on a, a ferry to Nantucket a couple weeks ago, and there was a group of girls in their 20s, mid-20s. He said there was about 10 of them, and they were discussing their Formula One fantasy league. Wow. American wow. girls going to Nantucket were discussing the Formula One Fantasy League, and he was like, they had to have only found it because of Drive Survive. Right. So, you know, what they have done in the last five years with Liberty Media and everyone coming in and the mentality shift, it doesn't surprise me, and I think it will only continue. They do – I think they know, though, there is a eventual position where they will start to hurt their inherent fan base, and you need to, you know, keep the purity of that sport. But, look – that is a juggernaut that's only getting bigger. And they're they're making if if I was the if one day woke up and was the head of Formula One, every move they made so far would be the same moves I'd make. So I love what they're doing. I'm a huge fan of it. Yeah, and you're right. Like in the future, eventually it does become a delicate line to walk. We've seen NASCAR try to walk this line a lot over the last 20 years and and finding that line between competition and entertainment. But you're right. I mean, for, for F1, the benefits have been huge. I mean, drive to survive. I mean, my drive to survive moment over the last year was there's this influential um, music blogger, entertainment blogger named Bob Lefsitz, who suddenly has started just blogging about drive to survive over the last couple <laughs> months. Like this is the guy who normally blogs a lot like classic rock 
and yeah, yeah. politics and like out of nowhere it's like he's in his 60s he's he's just i found this on netflix and this is the coolest thing and i'm going to tell you why all the tastemakers should be paying attention it's like what is happening what's still what's still surprised me parker though is like i, I get like and liberty media for, for those who might not understand like they came in american company bought f1 in 2017 from uh bernie ecclestone and and his group and they have had huge impact. I mean, Drive to Survive doesn't happen, I think, obviously, if Liberty yeah, Media no. is involved. But what surprises me is I don't understand all of like how FIA and the competitive environment of F1 and that oversight, how that all works. Like, it doesn't surprise me that Liberty would have that effect off the track. But this, to me, to your point, is almost an instance where that philosophy has been, become so immersive across the F1 paddock that it's now having an impact with the stewards of the competition. Like, it, it, should that surprise us given the FIA role here with F1 that it's even having that kind of impact? I think, you know, the FIA is in the business of motorsports. So <laughs> but yeah. what's good for motorsports is good for the FIA. Yeah. I, I think I, so a couple months ago, I never tweeted this, but I wrote it. And I, it was basically that the Americanization of Formula One will be the trend of the next decade. And what that mm-hmm. means, it's already happened, right? We've had Liberty Media come in. We're going to have more American races. Miami, by the way, every five seconds I run into someone, they talk about how they want to go to the Miami Grand Prix because it's going to be the Monaco of America. Like it, that is going to be an app. They're going to have 500,000 people trying to go to that thing. So it's going to be huge. Um, I think that also means though in the mentality that runs through the, you know, the FIA in terms of knowing this is an entertainment product these mm-hmm. days, it cannot just be a purest form of, of running a car. It has to be entertaining. You've got to keep your stars like Lewis Hamilton entertained. You got to get him getting out of the car and going, that was awesome. It's the same things we talk about in NASCAR all the time. They understand it. They know this. You're, you're, you're vying for people's attention. That is your metric. That is your, what you are trying to basically sell to people is you want to sell them on giving you their attention you got to make it entertaining to do it and so i think that runs through and then on the continue over the next decade what you're going to see is your silicon valley and american tech companies are going to get highly far more involved in formula one you're going to see government local governments in the u.s get involved in formula one as they are with these races that are going to come here you're going to see formula one work together with the major american motorsport series to find date equity and dates that make sense for everyone involved and to have promotional rights together. And you're going to see all this happen. And that will be the trend over the next 10 years. And the the purpose is what everyone's learned in motorsports is that a rising tide raises all boats. And what's good for one is good for NASCAR is good for IndyCar. And if the three of them work together, we can, as a sport, be in a far better position 10 years than we were five years ago. Good stuff. Yeah. We all want to see that really good stuff, yeah. really good perspective. You're a racing futurist. Parker Kligerman, and I, I love it. This is why we love having you on here. Um, so speaking of future plans, uh, yeah. I, I just mentioned you're on Motor Mouse, so people should be checking that out on, on Peacock and the NASCAR NBC schedule about to ramp up here. I'm sure we'll see a little bit more there. Truck series plans. What, what's on your uh, calendar, I guess, the next few months for Parker Kligerman? Man, it gets real busy. So yeah, we're starting up NASCAR NBC's side, uh, starting at Nashville. I'll also be racing Nashville and got a new sponsor on board, which I'm pretty excited about. It actually lends a lot to what I just talked about my end soliloquy there or monologue. <laughs> um, we're going to be doing, I think I've got like seven more truck races this year. I, I'm going to end up doing like, I think 11 or 12 truck races this year. So pretty pumped about that. Henderson Motorsports team, Food Country USA, we've been doing awesome. Um, we've had some really fast trucks, really good results, and we've had some great partners come on board and just a lot of exciting things there. So I'm just really enjoying driving race cars lately. Not to go too long-winded real quick, but a lot of drivers would benefit from having driving taken away from them for a moment and then getting it back because it gives you an entirely different perspective. Uh, and I'm kind of in that post side of like a year ago i pretty much was convinced i was never going to drive race cars anymore and then here i am now racing more than i have in two or three years and i just think i appreciate it wholeheartedly so having a lot of fun with that doing the tv stuff looking forward to our second half of the year and uh, definitely you know i think it's gonna be a busy time but hopefully we can get back in victory lane because i really want to do that for charlie anderson and the uh, Henderson Motorsports because he watches our Talladega win still this day often. So I got to give him more, more material. Right. Well, it sounds yeah. like this, I, I think we've got some, some fodder for future podcast topics. Uh, yeah. with, uh, what you just talked there about being outside the car and appreciating it. And we didn't even get into iRacing uh, e-NASCAR. So 
Next I'm time. Gl- I'm glad I'm going to see you in Nashville because yeah, we'll we'll just we'll we'll make plans to do this again uh, and not let it be this long next time. So um, <laughs> thanks again for being here, man. Always enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thank you, bud. Our thanks again to NASCAR and NBC analyst and NASCAR driver Parker Kligerman for joining the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Among the many things I love about Parker, aside from his youthful spirit and vibrancy and his high degree of intellect is that he also still drives race cars and race trucks, and he does it very well. And he also keeps up so well on more than just stock cars. We had great insight there from PK on IndyCar and Formula One. This was a great week to have Parker Kligerman on the podcast, and I hope we can do it again soon, in between Parker hopefully getting that second victory for Henderson Motorsports in the near future. Thanks as well to NBC Sports producers Aaron Feldstein and Emily Conboy for helping with the coordination and recording of this podcast. And as you heard, this episode also is taped via Zoom, and you can check out the video version of the NASCAR NBC podcast on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. Subscribe while you're there. Tons of great video content posting daily in that spot, including full replays of the NASCAR America Motormouth shows on Peacock. Those air every Monday and Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, and the replays live forever at the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. We're only a couple of weeks away from the 2021 NASCAR and NBC schedule beginning. That'll start at Nashville Super Speedway on June 20th. Make sure you check out NBCSports.com NASCAR. That's NASCAR Talk. For all the details and news on that as we get closer, Dustin Long and Chris Estrada have you covered. The NASCAR and NBC podcast is available wherever you download podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review that helps us spread the word. And any feedback you can send to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.